0: write thought-provoking books. I'm Mark Kramer, a serial entrepreneur who consults with family businesses and entrepreneurs. This is our 139th show. Today's guest is Navy CEO and leadership expert Rich Devaney, author of The Attributes. Rich, welcome.
1: Thank you, Mark. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, no, thank you. And, and as I said, the book is great. And again, thank you for your service to country. We all very much appreciate it.
1: Well, I I, I appreciate and we appreciate the appreciation. So thank you. (laughs) It's
0: a mutual admiration society. Thank Mm -hmm. you for uh, serving. But please tell me about your professional history. You know, uh, you don't have to give details about the SEALs, but tell us about how you got to where you are now.
1: Yeah, of course. You know, so I I grew up wanting to be a Navy pilot. My twin brother and I. My dad was a private pilot, so we loved flying. And this was back in the early '80s. So this was pre Top Gun. Uh, We still uh, Top Gun. When Top Gun came out, we just it just made us want to do it even more. But uh, but uh, because it was an awesome movie. But we we grew up kind of bent on Navy pilot. It was early '90s. The first Gulf War that I learned about the Navy SEALs and. and that's when I said, "Oh, these guys are pretty, pretty cool." Uh, got myself uh, to a an RTC program at Purdue, and ultimately, as I got as I approached commissioning, said to myself, "Well, I, I kind of know I could be a pilot, but I, I don't want to wonder if I could be a SEAL." So I I, I applied, got selected, and then in '96 went to SEAL training. Um, and really, as as we know, everything became very kinetic in 2001. I was an officer, so. So I was in leadership positions, uh, platoon commander, troop commander, um, uh, worked most of my career in one of our most specialized SEAL commands, uh, did half of my career there. But while there, also ran training and assessment for that command, was a commanding officer of a SEAL squadron, um, and uh, and retired in 2017 after just under 21 years. And then after retiring, got into the leadership culture space, which I, I thought was nice, but I was, I've always been really fascinated by performance. And so that's why I I wrote the book and, and it was based on some of the work I did in the SEAL teams. I'm really interested in this idea of performance and, of course, wrote that and, and um, published it in, in January 2021. And the last two years, I've been building a business with my wife around these concepts and consulting around performance and hiring and selection and, and really high-performing teams and individuals. And the book is great about that. And anybody who's going to try to build,
0: especially entrepreneurs, it's a must-read book for sure, what what was the hardest part about being a seal, and what did you like most and least about it?
1: Oh, uh, hardest part about being a seal. Um, I mean, I'm gonna get, uh, just to get real, real. I guess brutally honest, it's losing people. That's the hardest part. Is that you're in a profession where, uh, unfortunately, you have friends who are taken from you too early. Uh, war sucks, and it, it sucks for everybody. And, and it should be you know most of us who've been there and done that are all uh, somewhat pacifists at this point. And and not in saying in the way that we understand that there are bad people out there who need to be addressed, but we also know that things like war and conflict have to be very deeply thought through and considered prior to doing it it because it's a horrible scene. So I think that's what I like the least. (laughs) What I like the most uh, was the humor. I mean, I tell you what, I don't Humor is one of the foundational elements. I talk about that in the book as as a foundational. Yeah, practice. I
0: have that as a question,
1: yeah, yeah. for high performing teams, but the but the times I look back that we were joking around and laughing, when the environment around us was probably the most miserable you could imagine, and we were laughing so hard we could, we were crying. that's the times i I love the most, and that's probably what I miss the most is that type of bonding and camaraderie. and And when I get together with my with my buddies who I served with, in fact, I just had coffee with one of them this morning. It, it, you just get it back. I mean, you just start. You just start joking around in ways that you just otherwise wouldn't with other people. Right. So that's that was probably my favorite part.
0: Uh, and have you worked for any corporations since you left the seals? Like, did you go into the private sector?
1: So I worked. I worked for a uh, company called Barry Waymiller Leadership Institute. They are. They're actually a manufacturing company out of St. Louis, uh, but they have a leadership institute arm that I worked for for about a year. Uh, just kind of cutting my teeth in the in the speaking space and the and the teaching space, which I hadn't done a lot of, and I didn't like standing in front of people and talking, which meant, of course, I said, well, I have to conquer that fear and do it more often. Uh, so I did that for about a year and then pulled out of that to become a, uh, an independent contractor, really, because I wanted to, I wanted to, I love leadership and culture, but I really wanted to focus on performance. And of course, for me, this idea of performance and this elemental performance, it, it you know, there's leadership and cultures in there, obviously, because Leadership is about performance, right? But uh, but that's the lane I wanted to go. So I would say about a year working for somebody. And since then, I've worked for myself.
0: <laughs> so. yeah, well, you guys are natural entrepreneurs. I mean, you're raised to be natural entrepreneurs.
1: Yeah, I think so. I think it's that mentality. Well, what makes the SEALs unique? So it's it's really what I define. It's it's kind of, if I, were to, if I were to tell you what I'm totally into now and what I'm focused on in my post-Navy career, It's how I define the SEALs, even when I was in the teams. And I I used to say, hey, it's not about the shooting. It's not about the skydiving. It's not about all the stuff you see on TV. Navy SEALs are masters of uncertainty. Uh, We are individuals and teams that can drop into complex environments and perform. And so what I've been doing, what I'm fascinated with doing is, is helping others become masters of uncertainty. The Attributes is just the first step. In fact, the second book, the book I'm beginning to write will be called Masters of Uncertainty. And the journey we take clients on with our company is a vasters of Uncertainty journey. But um, but that's what makes SEALs unique, is that uh, they are individuals and teams that can drop into deeply complex environments and perform optimally. Um, and that's, that's how we do what we do. That sounds like the definition of an entrepreneur, for sure. Yeah. Uh, please define
0: attributes, as you wrote about in the book. Uh, and how many are there? Yeah, so you, I mean, over twenty, I think. You know, well, there's the more than that. I wrote book. about
1: twenty-five uh, in the book. Yeah. There's more than twenty-five, right? But attributes, what you know, attributes are are elements of performance that lo- largely go unconsidered or get conflated with skills. And when I was running this assessment selection program at this very specialized command, I was designed. I was tasked with, hey, you need to help us articulate what we're doing here. And what I had to do was I had to pull apart performance. A lot of times when we look at performance, we look at visible skills and skills are just kind of lay out the terms here. They are not inherent to our nature. None of us are born with the ability to ride a bike or throw a ball. Skills direct our behavior in known and specific environments. So here's how and when to throw a ball or ride a bike. And then because they're highly visible, they're very easy to assess, measure, and test. And you can put scores around them and stats around them. You can put them on resumes, which is exactly why we get seduced by skills often when we're picking teams. But what skills don't tell us is how we're going to show up in stress challenge, and uncertainty, because in an unknown environment, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill. This is when we lean on our attributes, okay? Attributes, on the other hand, are inherent to our nature. All of us are born with levels of patience, situation awareness, adaptability, resilience, okay? We can develop those things over time and experience, of course, but you can see levels of this stuff in very small children, which means there's a nature-nurture element to attributes. Attributes don't direct behaviors. Attributes inform behavior. So in other words, they tell us how we're going to show up an environment my son's levels for example my son's levels of uh, perseverance and resilience informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike and he was falling off a dozen times doing so and then finally because they're hidden in the background they're very difficult to assess measure and test they're hard to see they are the most visible and visceral during times of stress challenge and uncertainty when skills can't be applied but if we're looking at performance in any endeavor in life business personal whatever but especially hiring and picking teams if we're missing out on attributes, we're missing out on of, of, out of a huge part of the performance picture, especially if you want to build a team that operates well in uncertainty. And I'll just give you one story to, to kind of exemplify this that comes from the SEALs. So back, uh, back when I went through training back in 96, one of the first things you had to do when you got there was swim 50 meters. So you had to jump into a pool, swim 25 to one end, swim 25 to the other end, standard swim test. The story goes, this happened apparently before I got there, but the story goes, that the, uh, this kid shows up. It's his turn to swim. When he jumps into the pool he sinks right to the bottom and he starts walking across the bottom of the pool to one side and then he walks across the bottom of the pool back to the other side and he comes up and he's gasping for air nearly drowning and The instructor looks at him and says what the heck are you doing and the kid who's still trying to get his breath looks at the instructor and says i'm sorry instructor i don't know how to swim at that point the look the kid the instructor looks at him takes a pause and says that's okay we can teach you how to swim now why did the instructor say that the instructor said that because he knew that if this kid had the attributes, the qualities that allowed him to show up to Navy SEAL training without knowing how to swim, he had everything inside of him that we needed for him to be a Navy SEAL. Teaching him the skill of swimming was going to be the easy part, right? So so these attributes have to be considered in in performance, but especially if you want to build teams that operate in stress challenge and uncertainty, and specifically masters of uncertainty.
0: So we have a question from the audience. What was the trigger point in your mind to become a SEAL after not wondering about it for years, how would you compare yourself to fellow seal, the Beast, David Goggins?
1: David Goggins, yeah. Thanks, Tom. That's a good question. David and I know each. other. I know David. We served together once. In fact, he and I saw each other right before he released his his his. Well, not. I guess he just released his new book, but his, his last book can't hurt me. And we talked about this. Um, so let me take this one at a, one at a time. Trigger point to become a seal was this idea that I I didn't want to wonder if I could. Um, I knew I could be a pilot, but I didn't want to wonder if I could. So I just said, I'm going to, I'm going to try it and see if I can. So that was really the trigger point. And then of course, now you're, you go down a road. So, um, uh, David is a very interesting dude. Um, and I wouldn't compare myself to him because he's, he is, he's, uh, he's, he is a beast. He's a physical piece. One of the things that, that one of the things about David and he and I talked about this is he, a lot of his, um, his lessons, his, his testing himself comes from this physical world. He puts himself into physical environments to test himself. Um, and, and while that's really, uh, while that's really uh, helpful and, and, and can, can be a great way to test oneself. Um, it's different than say combat. It's different than going through an experience building a, a business. It's different than going through a, a, an illness like cancer. There's a different level of managing and performing an uncertainty that's physical endeavors don't give you. And so I think I think he, one of the reasons why I love Dave and I love what he does is A, he's incredibly authentic. Okay, so, and through his authenticity, he's inspiring. And then through, because of what he does, he's able to inspire people in walks of life uh, that never might have been inspired, like inner city and things like that. People say, hey, I can say, like, hey, just get through it. I can do this, right? I love that stuff. I think where, uh, where I enjoy uh, breaking off is, is saying, hey, okay, okay, look at this stuff now. Let's go a little bit deeper and let's see how we can apply some of what David talks about in terms of this mental game to experiences that aren't in fact physical, right? Then that are like, really, they're truly mental. They're emotional. They're they're organizational. They are life in, in, in all terms. And so I think um, I don't compare myself to guys like... Um, David or even Jocko, I think what they do is, is is phenomenal. And what I try to do is say, okay, based on what they do, because they do it so well, how can I create something that can be additive or help someone go a little bit deeper? And that's kind of my my thought. So thanks for the question, though, Tom. Um,
0: you start your chapter on leadership, writing that leadership is not a position, but a behavior. Please explain that. And from your experience, are leaders
1: born or can anyone be taught to lead? Yeah. Um, all right. So leadership. So we often get... Being in charge and being a leader conflated, okay? They are not the same thing. One is a position and one is a behavior, okay? Um, And the reason is because, and here's the other bad news. (laughs) While you get to to self-designate as being in charge, you don't get to self-designate as a leader. You don't get to call yourself a leader. That'd be like calling yourself good-looking or funny. Other people decide whether or not you're good-looking or funny. Other people decide whether or not you're a leader and they do so based on the way you behave, okay? These behaviors are what actually causes people to say, That is someone who I want to follow. Now, a lot of us may have had this experience, okay? I know I did in the military where the person who is in a hierarchical position above me, I look at and I say, I wouldn't follow that person anywhere. Meanwhile, there's someone over here by the water cooler who has no hierarchical position whatsoever. And I say, I would follow that person to hell and back. It's because of the way we behave, right? So so to be a leader, you have to behave like a leader. And if you think you're a leader and you look back and there's no one following you, I got bad news for you, okay? You might be in charge, but you're not a leader, so the, in, terms of, um, in terms of the second part of the question, be, lead, are leaders born or are they made? I say they are neither; either. They are chosen, okay? Leaders are chosen by the people who say, I want to follow. And it's based on these behaviors. So if you're someone who is in charge, that's great. If you want to be a leader, you have to behave in a way that leaders do. And I have the five attributes. Most of these behaviors, by the way, stem from these core attributes. And I talk about five of them in the book. But if you behave this way, people will say, generally, that is someone I want to follow.
0: Is, is there any leader that we see every day that you say, man, that that person, he or she, and it doesn't matter what country or or what line of work, do you say, I'm really impressed with their ability to lead?
1: Yeah, I mean, again, I think because it's a choice and a, and a decision, it's it's highly subjective to the individual. All of us have different people who we look at and say, that is someone I would want to follow. I mean, sure, there's probably more ubiquitous um, uh, Examples out there, certainly in history, Abe Lincoln, Winston Churchill, you know, I think there's always some people who 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 a lot of people, the majority of people say, you know, that person behaves in a way, but but when it comes to who we individually subjectively choose, I mean, we all know this. In fact, our politics, as divisive as it is now, can is is a good descriptor. I mean, th- there are people on the right who consider people who consider certain people leaders, while people on the left say, no, I would never follow that person, and vice versa, right? So so it becomes a subjective task. Um, I think, though, it's different than someone, again, just being in a position of hierarchy or being in a position of, of, um, of power or even fame. It's how really that person behaves, right? And, and I think the truest leaders in our lives, personally, are the ones who we have contact with and the ones who behave in a way w- with us that we're like, yes, I would follow that person. That is someone who I look up to, I would follow, and and, 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 and I can consider them a mentor.
0: Yeah, it's funny. Uh, get, staying away from the politics, I had a leadership expert um, who written a book on, on this show. And he said, President Trump is not a leader, he's an influencer. And he said, there's a difference. And then he gave his difference. And of course, you might look at President Trump and say, I think he is a leader because of whatever he does. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting that they felt he was more of an influencer than a leader. Yeah. Uh, another question from the audience, you're touching on coaching. How do you Test and determine if someone is coachable. What is the point where it becomes an impossible task to be successful?
1: Ah, yeah. Well, um, yeah. Thanks for the question, Jim. Um, the the so coachable again. We have to ask ourselves, okay, what are what is the environment inside of which you are asking this person to perform? Uh, that will start to dictate to us whether or not this is a is a uh, insurmountable task, or at least a task that we don't have enough time or effort to embark upon. Um, this is why I love attributes. Attributes as individuals start to inform how we show up to the game, right? And so so let me just give you a quick example. I think, so, okay, first of all, let me, I'll go back up here. All of the attributes, when we talk about attributes, all of us as human beings are born with all of the attributes, okay? The difference in each one of us are the levels to which we have each attribute. So I usually use adaptability, take adaptability, 10 being high and one being low. I would be about a level eight on adaptability. That means when the environment changes around me outside of my control, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow and roll with it, okay? Someone else might be a level three on adaptability. The same thing happens to them. It's difficult for them to go with the flow, okay? Again, there's no judgment on, well, if we were to line up all these attributes on the wall, like dimmer switches, all of us would have different settings, okay? And that informs our performance. And there's no judgment there because it's like judging our hair color. It's like who we are. I like to think of it in the way uh, the movie Cars describes it. I love the movie Cars, Okay, It's not just because my kids made me watch it a 1,000 times. It's a good movie. (laughs) Um, But I think it's a good uh, example of us as humans. All of us are cars, Okay, But some of us are Jeeps. Some of us are SUVs. Some of us are Ferraris. And there's no judgment there, because the Ferrari can do things the Jeep can't do, and the Jeep can do things the Ferrari can't do, Okay. but if we have to but we have to look up look uh, lift our hood and figure out what kind of car we are because we may be a jeep that's trying to run on a ferrari track or we might be a ferrari that's trying to run on a jeep track so when it comes to coachable and coachability one of the questions that we as leaders have to ask ourselves is why is this person not performing perhaps i'm asking a jeep to be a ferrari right i mean i've had this and when i was commanding officer i had uh, i had you know obviously i was in charge of a bunch of people i had a supply department And I had about eight people in that in that department, four of which four of whom were kind of in the kind of futures, the acquisition type stuff. And the other four were in like the the administrative uh, accountable or logging type stuff. Right. Um, Keeping keeping track of everything. And I had one uh, sailor who was under, underperforming. And when I brought her in to kind of talk about it, what I immediately realized within about five minutes of conversation is that person was in the futures section and they, the attributes that she brought to the table were completely more congruent with the other section. All I did was shift her and her performance skyrocketed, right? So, so part of our job as leaders and coaching is to ask ourselves, is this person in the right position in the first place? Um, and then say, okay, if the answer is yes, Then go about saying, "Okay, what are those specific things that we need to try to coach on? And then it's your decision as a leader to say how long and how much effort do we have? How much time do we have to put effort into this? Right. And the SEAL teams that I was part of if someone didn't have a predominance of the attributes we were looking for, unfortunately, we didn't have time to train people. We didn't have time to bring people up to the game. We just we were moving too fast. Okay, but that's not the case in every organization. You might have someone who's just out of college, and you're like you know, this person is showing a lot of potential. They have a bunch of the attributes. They need to. They need a couple more. Let's spend some time on this person. Let's develop this person. That's all part of the hard job of leadership.
0: You explain what it takes to be high functioning uh, team in the seals. Please explain how you prepare for this. And is it more mental than physical?
1: One hundred percent. It's uh, high performance is uh, is I, I would say ninety nine percent mental because even physical performance is ninety nine percent mental, right? It all starts in the brain, and I think uh, the high functioning, the, the high functionality that you find in the SEAL teams or any kind of high performing unit is this idea that we can actually process our environment in very rapid and precise ways. And so I talk about the mental acuity attributes in the book. Those mental acuity attributes are the most important for high performance. They really are, because it all starts in the brain. And are we situation aware enough to understand our environment to the extent that we need to? Can we compartmentalize to the extent that we can prioritize immediately and we could focus on what we need to focus on in the moment and block out everything else and then shift when we need to? Can we task switch? In other words, can we shift our priorities in a very smooth, efficient manner? Because again, we can only focus on one thing at a time, our brains at least. Um, and then how, how, fast the, how fast can we learn that, metabolize that, so we're not making the same mistakes every time, right? And so, so the, to the extent that those attributes are higher, you start to get into the, the higher performing teams, of course, depending on the team you're looking at. But certainly the SEAL teams, those mental acuity attributes came into play to a large extent.
0: In the book, you read about a program that picked the best of the best SEALs, and half of those flunked out the program. Why did that happen, and what did you learn from it?
1: Yeah, so that was the assessment selection. So this particular command's uh, what what happened was we would get uh, applicants from the regular SEAL teams uh, who, and they had to have a lot of experience. So you had to be, you had to have been a SEAL for five years or longer, right? You had to have top top uh, top evaluations and fit, fitness reports, and you had to be kind of recommended and so top dudes. And they were coming to our our program, and we had a nine month process that we we put them through a nine month kind of we called it Buds too, um, but it was. By month and 50% were 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 flunking. I would say flunking. They weren't they weren't making it through the program. And one of the problems we had when I took over was we weren't able to effectively articulate why guys were not making it. Because either the top guys, we were saying things like, well, they couldn't shoot very well, they couldn't do this very well, all very skills-based. It didn't make sense because these guys were all top dudes, right? And so yeah. I was tasked with, hey, Rich, you need to articulate this better this is when i began to dis- dissect attributes and skills because what i recognized was that hey wait a second it wasn't about us looking for specific skills in this program just like just like basic seal training buds is not about looking for specific skills skills we were looking for specific attributes and the environments that looked like it was skills training was in fact attributes assessments, right? We were seeing if the if the, if the the guys could actually operate in this environment and they had the attributes to be able to do what we needed them to do. Um, and so that's really what I learned the most about that program. And really, I mean, kind of the impetus of obviously everything I'm into now and in the, in the, in the whole book.
0: And by the way, you guys are in high stress environments. How do you keep from burning out? Like how long does somebody actually end up lasting in the seals you know like in professional football it's a you know like a four years I think is the average or three years yeah and and you even see guys who have the talent uh dropping out of the NFL for a variety of reasons so how does that work in in that environment a high stress environment how do you keep people resilient and and not burning out yeah seeing what you see
1: yeah, I mean burnout still happens. It just happens over a longer period of time. Um, I think if you're not careful. I will answer that because it's a really it's a really large question. But the way I'll answer it is really to help define performance the way we look at it, and the way that the way that all high performing teams and masters of uncertainty look at performance. And and it's not peak performance. We, we're kind of in this. We've been in this mode for, for for several years about everybody wants to have peak performance. It's peak here, peak there, peak, peak, peak. Peak is the word of the day, right? And yeah. people used to say to me, "Hey, you Navy SEALs, you're the ultimate peak performers." And I used to disagree with them because peak, by definition, is an apex, and there's only one place you can go from an apex, and that's down, <laughs> yeah. right? And then peak also um, has to be usually scheduled and planned for and prepared for. The professional athlete, the professional football player plans and schedules his entire week so that he can peak for three hours on Sunday, okay? We don't get to do that, right? Seals don't and normal people don't, okay? So what we define it as, what I would define it as and have been is optimal performance. Optimal performance means that I'm going to do the best that I can in the moment, whatever the best looks like in that moment, all right? Sometimes our best looks like peak, It's flow states, everything's clicking, everything's awesome and groovy, okay? Sometimes our best is I am just head down, nugging it out, going step by step because that's all I have right now. And it's dirty and it's gritty and it's painful and it's hard. That is still performing optimally, right? So so optimal performance allows us a couple things. It allows us to pat ourselves on the back when we are just gutting it out and grinding it out because that is still performing optimally, right? But also, more importantly, it allows us to do what I call kind of proper energy management. In other words, I don't have to be peak when I'm driving to the grocery store, okay? I can manage my energy in ways. Here's another myth I'll bust about the Navy SEALs because you see it on TV and movies. You might see a group of SEALs getting ready to do a mission and they all get into a huddle and they start hoo yawing and high-fiving like some athletic team about to take the, take the field. It doesn't happen like that. It never happens, right? In fact, most of the times we were in helicopters going into a target and guys were asleep. They were napping, why? Because guy, we, we didn't know what was coming. We don't know how long we were going to be out there. We didn't know what we needed. We weren't going to waste an ounce of our energy on doing stupid stuff in the helicopter, right? We were going to save our energy. We are to optimally perform. So optimal performance allows you, if you think of optimal performance as this umbrella underneath which peak can exist, and grinding it out can exist, and recovery can exist. All this exists you know, in, under this umbrella. And the way we delay burnout is we modulate our energy in the way we need to modulate throughout everything we're doing. That can mean even during a mission, right? There are phases even during a mission where things are slowed down and I've, we're taking micro recovery moments depending on where you are. So I think that's kind of the key to, uh, to a little bit more of the longevity.
0: Here's a question from the audience. What's one blind spot that you had going through the SEAL program and from a company culture perspective, what's the biggest blind spot you see in working with clients?
1: Yeah, the, the biggest, so the, I think the blind spot is this, is this lack of understanding of how to, what to look for if you're actually looking for the top performers, okay? Because, because skills are so easy to see, we get seduced by them. Um, and the, um, the blind spot I see in organizations all the time, especially when you go in and help them, is that they are picking a lot of their hiring processes, a lot of their performance evaluation processes are centered around and built around skills, right? And you're not learning about a team if you're just looking at skills. So this is what I call in the book, the dream team paradox. You build a team with all the people with the top skills, but they don't interconnect properly, right? So when the when the shit hits the fan, they fall apart, okay? If you want teams, so I always define teams as any group of two or more people that are that are uh, that are bonded in or that are working together towards a common goal or objective. Okay, that's a team. A high performing team is any group of two or more people that are working together towards a common goal or objective that perform not only when things are going great but also when things are going sideways. Right, that is a high performing team. And the only way you put together teams that do that properly is you look at attributes. And so, so when we go in, we start showing showing organizations, hey, and helping them understand the attributes you're looking for. It's It's like taking the blinders off. And now they have ways to save money on on bad hires. They have ways to performance evaluate in ways that that they never considered. They start to look at performance in a whole different way. That's the blind spot. Because if you want to build masters of uncertainty and teams like that, you have to look at attributes. Uh,
0: Another question from the audience. In 2017, I attended a keynote presentation uh, by Robert O'Neill and a member of the SEAL Team 6 mission involving Osama bin Laden. He said a SEAL's number one leadership trait is that they never quit, uh, which is also an important trait for entrepreneurs. How important is never quitting and being a Navy SEAL or a successful, uh, successful entrepreneur?
1: Yeah. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Chuck. So Rob is a great friend of mine. We served together. Um, I'm not sure if you read his book. Uh, I did. Yeah. But, uh, but commander Rich that's me so we deployed uh, when he talks about Commander Rich that's me we deployed together in fact I talked to him just last week he's a great friend um however I would disagree slightly on what he says <laughs> and it's not because what he says is wrong um it's because um, never quitting comes with this um, this definitiveness and almost a stigma and what I the way I would describe it is in fact I just wrote a I just wrote a, I wrote an article recently and the, what I titled is is is, I titled it, it's okay to quit, just never give up, okay? And I actually give an example of a mission that we turned around on that I had to turn everybody around. Rob was on that with me. In fact, Rob was on a couple of missions that I had to turn around where this idea of quitting, I mean, quitting is, um, we can think of it as kind of a very definitive singular in the moment act, right? Um, And it's kind of done and it's over with and it's kind of like you're quitting, like it's it's done, right? It's singular. Um, Giving up is like, you're giving up on like a whole goal. So the examples will be like, I can quit today's workout, right? But I'm not going to give up on being healthy, okay? And the idea is in any goal or endeavor, right? We're going to go down a pathway and that pathway is going to be unknown in certain parts. And we're going to think we can, we should go one direction, but ultimately we're like, oh shoot, that's not working. And if we're not smart enough to, to manage our environment and understand and keep on interrogating whether or not what we're doing is working, then we're going to fail. And sometimes when we interrogate whether or not what is working, we say, this is not working. We're going to quit what we're doing and we're going to try something else. Okay. And this is my example that I, I write about in the blog that we were on the mission. And as we were going down this mission planning and then starting to go out there, things were just coming at me and coming at us that I was like, this is not right. This is not fitting. This is, and finally got to the point where it was, okay, there's there's just too much here. This this doesn't feel right. We're going to quit this, right? And it didn't, It you know, again, I, we could say we we returned to base. You could say we, you know, lived to fight another day. You could, you could put, we could wrap whatever words you want around that. We quit the op and that's what it felt like, right? But I knew it was the right thing to do, even though it felt bad, right? So we quit, we went back, we regrouped, we figured it out and we did something else the next day, right? So, so quitting is okay as long as you never give up. So I would almost just modify is you never you never give up. That's that's one key trait of all Navy SEALs, and I think Rob would uh, would agree with. It. I'll text him after this and make sure he does. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Another question from the audience: Is there a way to prioritize attributes most to least important, and or is it a situational dependent?
1: Yeah, it's uh it's both situationally dependent and um, and kind of organizationally and team dependent. So for example. And this is exactly what we do with teams and organizations. We help them figure out what the top attributes are for their team and organization. So because that list is gonna be is gonna look different depending on who you are. In other words, the list of attributes required to be a great Navy SEAL team is gonna look different than the list of attributes required to be a great sales team or a great surgical team or a or a car sale or a you know a, a carpentry team, whatever it, you, you name it, that list is different. It's subjective to that. So so we can, we can do the work there and basically figure out what that master list is and absolutely prioritize what we think those top attributes are based on the, the process we go through. So you say, hey, when we're doing this thing, the top three attributes are this, this, and this. No, no compromise, nothing. If we do, if every member doesn't have these, I'm, they just can't be a part of this thing, right? And then it goes down in priority in terms of the way we do the process. So so the answer is yes, you can prioritize them. We have a, we, there's a process and a system we take organizations through to do that. Um, and once you or once you prioritize them and organize them th- that way, now you know exactly what the absolutes are and the things you can kind of waver on. By the way, I want to mention that
0: Chuck buys every single book of everybody's ever been on this show. So his library is pretty extensive, and I'm sure he'll be adding your book as well. SEALs seem to require the same traits as entrepreneurs, as we've talked about throughout this conversation. Mm -hmm. One of the most important is adaptability. and, And you talk about that all the time. What kind of mental makeup do you need to be adaptable? And can anyone become really good at it?
1: Well, you need you needs you need some of that attribute. Can anyone become really good? I don't know if anybody can come really good at it. We can all we can all do better on our adaptability, but again, adaptability is this idea of how comfortable are you when the environment forces you to change. <laughs> What's that comfort level? If it's a if it's a low comfort level, you're likely low on adaptability. It doesn't mean you're not adaptable. It just means you're a little bit lower and you can so you can work on becoming more comfortable adapting and the way you do that is you continuously throw yourself into environments that force you to adapt that's how you do it um so the answer is yes you can develop it sometimes a balance of other attributes though can also help it so in other words i've uh, i've coached and talked to people who are low on adaptability but high on open-mindedness right that basically helps cancel that low adaptability out because when you're high on open-mindedness, the environment's changing. Yeah, it's slightly, dis- it's slightly uncomfortable, but your mindset is, well, let me keep an open mind and see what happens, right? So, so high open-mindedness and low adaptability can actually help. You can have, you, uh, In other words, high open-mindedness can help cancel out a little bit of low at- adaptability, but you can certainly, any one of these attributes you can actually develop if you're low on it. It just takes three things. It takes one, uh, an awareness that you need to develop it, two, a willingness and a motivation to develop it, and then, three, a uh, willingness to step de- uh, deliberately into environments that test and tease that attribute out. So, in other words, if you wanted to develop your patience, for example, you would have to go find environments that test and tease your patience. Okay. Whatever that looks like for you, it might be you're going to go deliberately drive in traffic or you're going to pick the longest line in the grocery store to stand in. I always say have kids, that'll develop your patience, right? But whatever those environments are for you subjectively, you have to find those. It's going to be uncomfortable. And it's going to be challenging, right? There's going to be uncertainty and stress and challenge involved, but that's the point, right? So you can, any attribute you're a little bit lower on that you want to develop, you can develop that. One final note on that, just because you're low on an attribute doesn't mean you have to develop it, okay? Again, we're automobiles and we have different attributes for reasons. There are certain niches in life where being higher on a specific attribute might be detrimental to what you're trying to do. I always say the stand-up comic who's too high on empathy is not going to be a very good stand-up comic because they're not going to be able to find the funny at a funeral, right? The Navy SEAL, to be, be honest with you, who's way too high on empathy, might not be able to do our job, right? So so depending on the niche and the environment you're in, the type of automobile you are, just because you're low on an attribute doesn't, doesn't mean you have to develop it. It's really say, hey, what in, in, in the context of what I'm doing or what I want to do, what are maybe the one or two attributes I'm a little bit lower on and that working on will actually help me uh, do better?
0: I would love to have just been on your team just to have these conversations. <laughs> I, I just enjoy listening to you uh, talk about that. You write about the power of humor especially when things are going well. when is a good time to interject humor and when should it uh, and what should it look like
1: i am of the opinion that it's never a bad time to interject humor but I'm a of, of you know the seal teams are a uh, I mean we are we laugh at everything that's a superpower and, and here's why when we laugh, we are juiced with three very powerful chemicals, neurotransmitters. One is dopamine, okay? Dopamine, we all know it's, well, it's often mistaken as the reward chemical, right? It's actually more of a motivation chemical. It tells us this is good, keep doing this. But it's the root of all addictive behavior. You know, dopamine tells us, hey, this is good, keep doing this, keep doing this, right? So anyway, we get, we get dopamine. We get endorphins. Endorphins are the human body's uh, opiates, okay? Interestingly enough, um, late 60s, early 70s, doctors were studying the brains of drug addicts. And inside the human brain, they found opiate receptors. They're like, that's interesting. Why the heck does the human brain have opiate receptors? It's because we make our own opiates. They're called endorphins. We've often heard of this as runner's high, all right, or whatever. We we get endorphins because we are designed as endurance creatures. We're designed to go the long haul to find food, shelter, water, whatever. Endorphins help us do that. So we get dopamine, we get endorphins, and finally we get oxytocin, known as the love hormone. Okay, it's more of a neurohormone, which means it affects both the body and the brain. Okay, but known as, you know, it's, it's, it's a bonding, binding chemical, right? We get huge amounts of oxytocin when we engage in physical contact with other human beings or our pets. We get oxytocin when we either, either commit or even witness acts of kindness and generosity towards other human beings. So it's, it bonds us and binds us. So think about this. When we laugh, an involuntary response, right, like sneezing, we automatically, without even wanting it, we get dopamine, we get uh, endorphins, we get uh, oxytocin. Those are hugely powerful feel-good chemicals, okay? And so they are actually hacking into the ability to perform in stress, challenge, and uncertainty because, just take dopamine, for example, when we step into our fear, we also get rewarded with dopamine. Any of us can probably think of an example in our lives where we were genuinely frightened. You know, we had, we had some fear in ourselves and in our, in our minds, okay? And someone cracks a joke or someone something makes us laugh and suddenly our fear goes away. Okay, It's because we've just hacked into courage. We've gotten this dopamine hit. So so I have never experienced a high-performing team uh, that doesn't have humor as a large part of it. And I think the best teams, it's also, by the way, why a uh, sense of humor or humor is one of the most desired qualities when looking for a partner or a mate. Because if you can find someone who can help make you laugh, or you can laugh with, it's a It's a, it's a hack and to continue going it's a hack to, to, to achieving. So, so that's why it's one of, I think one of the most important, um, uh, attributes and how it looks is, is subjective to the team. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you there, the, the stuff that we would talk, we would joke about in our, in our SEAL team rooms. I mean, if they had cameras and microphones, all of us would be canceled within two seconds. Right. But, you know, (laughs) so it's, it's going to be, it's going to be subjective to, uh, the group, um, but I tell you what. Regardless, it's it's very very powerful.
0: I guess Kevin Hart missed his calling. He should have been a Navy SEAL. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we have a question from the audience. What can uh, what can we do in our schools to have a higher impact on reaching optimal performance and helping people start off as square pegs in a round hole? Yeah. Not what, a, what a
1: great question, Tom. Um, I, we uh, we've thought about this a lot. I've we've been approached by schools uh, from colleges down to elementary. Colleges and high schools, I'm not as concerned with because I think I think the concepts in the book are, are sound and, and they can be absorbed. I get concerned when we're talking about younger kids because from the ages of birth to about 22, okay, really 25, but we can say 20, 22, um, our frontal lobes are still forming, okay? We are absolute sponges. Our plasticity has never been higher, right? So, so I'm always uh, of the mind that we don't want to label anybody, right? We want to throw as much in front of our kids' windshield so that they can figure out what's what what shape peg they actually they actually are, right? And let them figure that shape out. And then once their frontal lobe's nice and formed, then they can start figuring out, okay, where do I fit? Okay. But um but I do think that um we've talked about this with schools. Our biggest thing was I wanted to make sure and we're gonna work with schools. That's one of our goals, right? But again I have to I, I always I'm always reminded when you know when you're building a business I'm always reminded of the of the old Russian proverb which is if you chase two rabbits, both will escape, right? So you have to you have to you have to pick which rabbit to chase and so we're chasing a rabbit so we can get ourselves established at some point i want to work with younger kids schools but it would be how do we develop a system of education that can start understanding and being aware of this stuff but really developing habits of introspection and habits of, of of testing and risking right that's the biggest i think gift we can give to our kids is is a is an ability to and a desire to learn more about themselves and throw themselves into some into some uh, discomfort so they can learn and grow and things like that. And so that's where we'd focus. Um, that's where we will focus once we can chase that rabbit.
0: Uh, question from the audience. Your thoughts on team, uh, team are insightful and make a ton of sense. Given the new hybrid or remote environments many people and companies are in, how to ensure individuals work together. This definitely plays into adaptability, but overall not being present with one another presents some real challenges. How do you how do you make that work? I, and that is a problem, because how do you build co- company culture yeah. and interaction with people if everybody's on Zoom?
1: Yeah, no, you're right. Well, well uh, Jim, the, the foundational element of any team, uh, high-performing or otherwise, but certainly uh, high-performing, is trust, OK? And so it starts with trust. Now, trust, just like leadership, is based off behaviors. In other words, you cannot make anybody trust you. All you can do is behave in a way that allows them to choose to trust you and those behaviors stem from these attributes these and and are you being empathetic are you showing someone you care about them are you being accountable are you being authentic okay you can actually start to um express some of these attributes through a digital environment as well i mean listen you know every zoom call doesn't have to be all about business you know i can get on a zoom call and for the first 15 minutes say hey mark how are you doing tell me about your life you know what's going on how are you feeling you know tell me about this. How's your, how are your kids? You know, I mean, we can start to genuinely create a relationship with each other that starts founding this elements of these elements of trust to a way that, Oh my gosh, I really feel like this person cares about me. Trust begins to build and from trust from that foundational boat, if you will, you can then build higher and higher performance. But, but the key is, especially in a digital environment, um, find ways to build trust with each other in a digital environment. It's going to involve communicating with each other spending time with each other listen you know I, one of my good friends always says time is the currency of leadership okay because time is something no one has any more time than anybody else it's all it's all an equal commodity and when we give our time to someone we can't get it back there's no giving that back right so so when you spend time with another human being they feel cared for they feel like you you are you're, you you're you're taking care of them so spending time with your people maybe some one-on-ones i have friends who will do uh, they'll do virtual lunches with with random like just one-on-one with someone at random times throughout the week and just talk like let's have let's eat on camera but let's talk about stuff and and build some trust so i think building trust is the key and then now that we're kind of out of this COVID stuff, capitalize on opportunity to get together physically as well. Um, that that is hugely important. I, I'm not I'm not necessarily convinced that you can have a hundred percent digital team and have it be high, high performing. I think there has to be at least some occasions, maybe once or twice a year, where you can actually physically get with each other and 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 you know, hug it out, whatever, get that oxytocin flowing, right? <laughs> In physical ways, right? So that's how I'd answer that.
0: I had a neuroscientist from Wharton on the show too, and he said that people need to get back together in offices because without that personal interaction, you lose like 30% of your uh, brain functionality um, that comes with interacting with humans in a physical and real environment, which I thought was really interesting. I'll have to introduce your son to him (laughs) since that's his area uh, that he's interested in. You write about the importance of patience. Are some people just wired to be impatient and how do you discipline yourself to be more patient? Because you see people who are just impatient.
1: So I so I talk about patience in the book as an attribute, but I, I do it in a chapter which I call the others, because what I found was when I wrote about the 25, when I was looking at the 25, you'll notice that I have five categories, grit, mental acuity, um, uh, drive, team ability, and leadership. OK, but in those five categories, there are only 22 attributes. Um, the other three, or we could actually call them six, I talk about in- uh, the uh, the chapter called the others. The reason why I set those apart was because they didn't they didn't share the same properties as the first twenty two. So in other words, adaptability, resilience, courage, um, situation awareness. One could argue that uh, if you're a little bit higher on that, it could it's a better thing, right? You know, better option. So higher is a little bit better, not too high, but higher is a little bit better than lower. Okay, that could be argued. But when it comes to things like patience and impatience or competitiveness and non-competitiveness, that same calculus doesn't exist. In other words, there are highly successful people who are both patient and there are highly successful people who are impatient. There are highly successful people who are competitive. There are highly successful people who are not competitive, right? So, So in terms of patience as an attribute, nothing's wrong with being highly impatient and nothing's wrong with being patient, right? So you have to figure out where you are. You just have to see if that's helping you in your endeavor. What I will say, about success as i i do think one of the keys to success is the ability to delay gratification okay that is another level or a different almost a little offshoot of impatience that i think has to be and maybe maybe i haven't really thought too deeply but maybe we just call it even something else but the ability to delay gratification is i think essential to success right because what that means is i am going to do the hard work now right i'm willing to do the hard work i'm willing to take the hits i'm willing to take the lumps i don't need the reward in the moment i can work hard and get the reward later i think that's the type of patience that's required for ultimate success but in terms of attribute wise being highly impatient or being highly patient not a big deal in fact the best the most high performing teams have both polarities on it my wife and i is a good my wife and i example we're married for about 21 years now We've lived the war together, okay? She is an impatient person, okay? That's just her attribute. I am a patient person. Now, that's worked beautifully in our relationship because when patience is required, I typically step up and take lead. When impatience is required, she steps up and takes lead, right? And that's how we play the game, okay? So so we can come to these teams, same with competitiveness and non-competitiveness, same with the other one, fear of rejection versus I don't care what people think. Those are the three ones that actually, the polarities, having both polarities on a team Actually, make make for the highest performing teams.
0: And on this line of patience, and then we'll get back to questions from the audience. When does too much patience as a leader negatively affect the organization? And how do you know when it's time to flick the switch?
1: Well, I would almost say you know, like, it's not. It's not necessarily too much patience. It's too little decisiveness. <laughs> you know, I think. I think. Um, I think decisiveness uh, and, and the inability to make decisions, the inability to actually move when you need to move is actually what's going to affect an organization negatively. Um, I would not argue that too much patience or too much impatience would affect it negatively. I think, um, or, or, I mean, we could, we could certainly make arguments, uh, you know, that nothing's, nothing's absolute right. But I would, I would, I would actually relate that to decisiveness. Um, if, if a leader is is unable to make effective decisions in an efficient manner in a, in a timely manner that makes sense. That is going to affect the organization. And by the way, it'll also erode the people's ability uh, the people's belief in their ability to lead. Decisiveness is an, is a leadership attribute that I talk about and it's, it's a leadership attribute for a reason because, and this, again, this is different than making decisions. Making decisions is a skill. You can teach someone how to make better decisions. And there's a process by which you do decisiveness adds efficiency and speed and timeliness of the process. And and leaders, the best leaders are decisive, not in a responsible way, but in a way that says, hey, I'm gonna collect as much information as I can, but I'm not gonna go overboard. I'm not gonna have paralysis by analysis. I'm gonna make a decision, we're gonna move on it. And we're also gonna use accountability because once we move on it, we're gonna see, hey, was that the right direction? Is this working? If it wasn't, we're gonna make a different decision, right? That's, that's those are the best leaders. Um, they, they buttress their decisiveness with accountability. Um, And I think that's the best uh, best combination.
0: A question from the audience. How have women changed the game in seals, um, uh, seal world and or in the cultures of companies you've worked with?
1: yeah um the uh i see that from tom and i see the other the, uh lewis also has one about gi jane and women so let's just talk about women in the seal teams <laughs> um they are now allowed in the seal teams this, uh, women are allowed none of them no no woman has yet made it uh for, made it in i don't think they've started training or they've not made it through yet um i know the, there's a woman who made it through the special warfare combatant crewman the boat team folks um which is great Um, I'm a, I'm someone just to put it quite bluntly, who is really, um, quite focused and at about, about not becoming a dinosaur. Okay. Um, and I think there's, there's dinosaur ways of thinking and, um, the world evolves and war evolves. And I think we are in a position now where we're going, we're, we're, we're heading towards a world where. Um, the next war is not going to be fought and won by muscles and guns. Okay, it's going to be fought and won by intelligence. It's going to be fought and won by 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 nerds, <laughs> by thinkers. Okay. Um, now, when we talk about any any group of people that is exclusively one gender, okay, we are automatically missing out on fifty percent of the perspective. Okay, and and you could you could do this. You could do a really easy experiment. Take a picture, just, a, just whatever you know, a, a portrait or a picture of a living room, for example, and show that to a guy and say, tell me what you see. And that guy is going to be like, well, okay, I see a couch, I see a lamp, I see a carpet. Then show it to a, a lady and see what they say. It's going to be a whole different explanation on that, okay? Um, it's because women and men look at the world differently. And I'm someone who, who says, hey, if we're going to evolve our ability to defend our nation, to, uh, to protect democracy, but to even do anything – Innovative and and um, and discovery inducing. We have to include all perspectives. Um, so it means the community has to has to change. It has to morph. Uh, it's trying to. It's difficult. Again, some communities won't survive that type of evolution. They may have to just die on the vine, and something new emerges. Who knows? But I'm all for that. I think. I mean, we don't. You know, we have, we're we're evolution creatures, I and mean, we we are creatures that have made it from cave dwellers to space space explorers, and we we haven't done that by this by keeping our, our thinking the same. <laughs> We've done that by opening our our perspective. So all that to say, no, no, no women seals yet. Uh, they are allowed. So we'll see what happens. And I think it's a good move. It's going to, there's going be some growing pains and we'll see how that goes. But listen, my best friends now are the, ad, are admirals, right? And so, and so, and and guys I serve with are either master chiefs or, or out, but all these, all of my best friends are now taking over this community uh, at very high levels, and I, I couldn't, I couldn't be more comfortable. I mean, it's just I sleep so well at night knowing these guys have the watch. Uh, so we're in good hands. So just trust me.
0: <laughs> That's great. Uh, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned that seals have fear of rejection. Uh, please explain what you, uh, what are the pros and cons of fighting against and accepting rejection? Because rejection is just a part of life.
1: So fear of rejection, so this is this the the fear of rejection attribute goes into that others category, that others chapter that I talk about. And it's really this idea that we none of us like to uh look bad in front of the group and we we don't want to be isolated from the group. So what fear, what an elevated fear of rejection does for every one of us is it causes us to do things and perform in ways that we otherwise may have not. Okay. The example is I'll use me as an example. Okay. I don't like heights. I've never liked heights. Okay. Even though I love flying, right? But flying is different. So jumping out of airplanes was always difficult for me. Always, every single time I did it. The reason why I did it hundreds and hundreds of times was not because I was going to DZs on my own. It was because the guys next to me were doing it. And because they were going, there was no way I was not going to go, okay? Because I was not going to let them down, okay? So uh, in a healthy, obviously, fear of rejection in an healthy, any of these, by the way, any of these attributes, too much is bad and too little is bad, right? So there has to be a sweet spot. Obviously, fear of rejection too high can, can create peer pressure and things like that. But, but elevated levels like this cause people like me to do things I never would have otherwise done It's because I'm not going to let this person next to me down. I'm not going to let them, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be rejected by them. So that's why it's a little bit elevated uh, for seals. Uh, But again, the opposite of that is insouciance. You know, in other words, I don't care what other people think. And that's where a lot of the key iconoclasts come. They're just people who just, they just do their own thing and they don't care what anybody thinks. And guess what? Suddenly people just start flocking to them. They just live their own lives. They are as important to society as sure. So, so again, this is why there's no judgment on either one. It's just like, okay, how do these show up? How does how does it manifest in my own life? And how can I maximize these capabilities?
0: Hey, Rich, uh, talk about the leadership paradigms because I, I, I it was interesting. I never heard of this before about the amoeba shaped organizational uh, plan. And what are the key attributes that you recommend in that plan? So explain a little bit about these different paradigms and, and, and what you came out with.
1: Yeah. So this was, a, this was a result of me standing in front of a bunch of CEOs uh, after, shortly after retirement, asking me to on a whiteboard draw what I thought the task organization looked like for a high performing team. And uh, the models I had didn't fit. I had the hierarchical pyramid. Obviously, that wasn't gonna work because you have the leader who sits on top, says, Hey, you work for me, and everything goes up and down in a very bureaucratic way. Um, the flat model, which was like the flat line, which didn't also work because you know, again, sometimes it's in the flat model where they're like, yeah, we're all no one outranks anybody, everything's cool, right? Sometimes it's hard to actually figure out who's in charge, which is tough. But also in the flat model, things can be siloed, right? Something can happen on the right side of the line that doesn't happen on the left side. And finally, there was the upside-down pyramid, the servant leadership model, where the leader sits on the bottom. It's like, I'm your your leader, but I work for you, right? That didn't work because in a high-performing team, burden is distributed. So really, largely in frustration, I drew an amoeba. I drew a blob. And I said, where do you think the leader sits in this blob? And I got answers like front, back, top, bottom. I said, all of you are correct. In a high-performing team, the leader is wherever the leader needs to be in the moment, okay? This is called dynamic subordination. In a high-performing team and dynamically subordinating team, people understand that the environment changes, and, and, and challenges and issues can come from any angle at any moment. And when one does, the person who is closest to that problem and most capable immediately steps up and takes charge, and everybody follows. And then the environment shifts, and someone else steps up, right? It's a constant swap. It's, I also call it alpha swapping, that alpha position. This also goes speaks to the thing that, hey, leadership is not a position, right? It's actually it's actually a, it's a behavior. It's when do you step up? When do you recede? My hierarchical position, all that did as an officer in the teams is just define my roles in the teams. This is what I'm responsible for. So when it's my turn to step up, I'm stepping up, right? So dynamic subordination allows for this swap, constant swap. And that's exactly how the highest performed teams operate, certainly Navy SEALs. um, It's this dynamically subordinating environment.
0: Uh, Question from the audience. What's the best uh, way, instruments, to measure the 25 attributes? Is there a test out there that measures this?
1: Yes. Right now we have a, an assessment tool on the website and uh, we're going to be modifying it and making it even better, but uh, you can go test your grit, mental, acuity, and drive attributes. We have one coming out for the leadership and team ability. That's going to be a little bit more complex because, again, you don't get to call yourself a, a leader. You don't get to call yourself a great teammate. Other people decide whether or not you're either of those things. So those assessments are going to be 360 reviews, not just self-assessments, right? So, But we have those, uh, at least the grit, mental, acuity, and drive. We'll have the leadership and team ability out right after the new year, plus a revised revamped version of the single ones. Uh, So you can get a sense of those. And and we're also putting together this next year, we'll put together some processes to uh, to better help individuals figure out where they sit. We already have processes to help teams and organizations, but we're gonna work on that. But right now there are some assessment tools. Just go to the attributes.com. You can check everything out there. Excellent. Oh, you
0: were able to buy that name attributes.com?
1: Oh yeah, I did. I went in early.
0: You must win really early, like when the internet was starting. Um, You write about narcissism. Uh, I would think that many of the world's greatest leaders and entrepreneurs are are, are narcissists and uh, and have a high rating of that, yet incredibly successful. Well, one, is narcissism good? And how do you keep high potential narcissists from self-imploding?
1: Yeah. Well, so narcissism was a great one to research. Um, Again, just to kind of shorten this uh, to the degree that we can, um, the elemental definition of narcissism is is the desire to stand out, be adored, and be recognized. That's it. Okay. Let me tell you something. Every single human being on this planet at some point in their lives Wants to stand out be adored to be recognized and this is neuroscientifically proven because you get neuros because you get uh neurochemicals neurotransmitters released when you are getting adored when an infant's getting paid attention to by their parents they're getting dopamine they're getting uh serotonin they're getting oxytocin doesn't change when you're adults okay so narcissism at manageable levels can be and often is the impetus to some very audacious goals why the heck would someone want to be a navy seal people ask me that all the time when i really dove in sure i was a patriot sure i wanted to serve my country but i wanted to see if i could be a badass i wanted to see if i could Mm -hmm. do something that very few people could do then i asked my buddies why do they become seals they said the same thing okay there's narcissism driving that to a small degree the key is so you don't get overboard is surround yourself with trusted teams surround yourself with people who tell you the truth even when it hurts who keep you from getting out over your skis who keep you humble keep you laughing and and you can tell the, the malignant narcissist is always easy to spot because they surround themselves with yes men and they are people who bend the knee who are always telling what they want to hear. And oh by the way, those those positions are transient. So if someone leaves that group. That, that person becomes immediately enemy number one to that narcissist. That's, what, that's just what happens. So malignant narcissism, you can always tell by the people who are surrounding that person. If we want to manage ourselves, we surround ourselves with people who tell us the truth. We trust. We're not always the center of attention. They keep us grounded, all that stuff.
0: So let's see if we can answer, ask you two quick questions here. First is, when meeting someone who comes across as overly confident, how do you know if they're just hiding how inadequate they feel about themselves, or are they comfortable about themselves?
1: Well, the best way to do is experiential. That's why experiential environments are the best tool because anybody can say anything in a, in a um, interview process, but if you start to inflict some discomfort and some uncertainty, that's when these attributes start coming to the fore without, uh, without even asking for them. But, but so, so really that's, so I always recommend to in interview processes. If you can get experiential events in there, great. Um, If you can ask some questions that insert some discomfort, some, some uncertainty, great, because that's when you can start seeing these attributes. And when you start seeing attributes, you are seeing the real person.
0: Last question. Uh, What skills are future leaders going to need to lead in a boundaryless Uh, world that we now are come in, especially as Zoom has replaced the in-person interaction.
1: Yeah, I mean, we, we all need to work on becoming masters of uncertainty. It's not really about adjusting to the world. It's about adjusting to how the world changes. In other words, masters of uncertainty don't concern themselves with one specific environment. Masters of uncertainty concern themselves as what are the tools and the techniques and the attributes I need so that regardless of the environment, whatever happens, I know how to manage. I think that's what we're endeavoring to do. Uh, Certainly what uh, we're endeavoring to do at the Attributes Incorporated and what I'm going to try to do here in the next few books and kind of what I'm bent on after after spending 21 years in teams of Masters of Uncertainty.
0: Right, exactly one o'clock. We thank you so much for taking the time. We will look forward to your next book. Everybody, it was wonderful seeing all of you. Everybody have a great and safe weekend.
1: Thanks, everybody. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Have a great weekend.